Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start reading at verse 18 and read through verse 29. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine of this day, and once again, the privilege and opportunity that we have to join in worship. Dear Lord, we pray for Dr. DeYoung this evening that you give him the words that you have chosen for him, and we pray for Wilma this evening also. Um, she's not able to join us, and we thank you for the time Dr. Norm and Wilma have spent with us, and we pray that this, this next chapter in their life, dear Lord, that you will, you will guide them and show them, show them your hand like you always have, dear Lord, and we pray for this, and we thank you for everything that you have given us. This we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you, Brent. The book of Hebrews 
is a fascinating book. I've never done an intensive series of preaching on it. But there are so many interesting things, especially because of my historical background. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Some folks claim it's Paul. Some, claim, some people claim that it's Apollos and others. That's immaterial. The book of Hebrews is primarily about Jesus Christ. But it's written to Hebrew people who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. These are people who probably grew up in the Jewish tradition, maybe even at the synagogues. They have a very clear familiarity with the whole Hebrew form of worship in the synagogues and in the temple. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I want to show you a contrast. You have that familiarity with the Old Testament priests, the Old Testament sacrifices, all the bloodletting, all the kind of activities that were connected with the temple and with the synagogue. But I want to show you something better. That but there in verse 22 is crucial. Whenever you see that word in a scripture passage, you realize that the author is setting up a very sharp contrast. Here is one situation, one set of conditions, but over here is something else. In order to understand this passage, we have to go back to Exodus. I hope you'll have your Bibles open because I'm going to use different passages as we go along. And when you read some of these passages, hopefully you will be surprised at what's there. I want to have you turn back with me, as your outline suggests, to Exodus 19, starting at verse 9. Let me give you the context of this. This is a passage that I would encourage pastors to read periodically instead of reading the law. Sometimes I, I'm weary. I hear churches, pastors reading the law, the exact same version, Exodus 20, week after week after week without any variation, and everybody sort of goes to sleep. Now we heard this a thousand times. If you read the introductory passage here in Exodus 19, I guarantee you, you should not go to sleep. Because God is approaching the mount with the law. And he's setting up a situation that is starking. I want to read there beginning at verse 9. Exodus 19, beginning at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. 
For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Notice what's happening here. God has been leading his people through, through the wilderness, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. And now, after about two months of traveling in the wilderness, God says, okay, I'm going to bring you up to the edge of the highest mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. And it's arid desert. It's the highest mountain. And God says, all right, right up to the edge. Don't touch it. Don't get any closer. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you law. And there are two commands that he makes right up front. The first thing is, make sure that every one of you washes your garments. In three days, I'm going to come down and I'm going to talk to you, and you better all be clean. What? 
We know from Jewish history that when you washed your garments, you first of all had to take a bath. Your body had to be clean before you could have clean clothes put on because otherwise even the clothes would be contaminated. God is saying, I will not tolerate dirty people in my presence. You have to be clean. Do we have anything like that? Over here, we have a baptismal font. Normally, there's water in there. And we have bring somebody for baptism, and we say, okay, there has to be water. Why? Do the kids have to drink it? Do those? No. They have to be washed. We have with us this weekend one of our grandsons and their cutest little girl you ever found. Is she dirty? Are any of us clean? And the answer is, we have to be washed. That's what baptism is really about, the washing away of our sins. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. You don't become saved because you're baptized. This is a symbol, it's a message that God gives us in saying all of us have to be washed because we are sinners. We are born sinful. Not like many people say that, oh, you become sinful when you're a teenager. The whole Left Behind series preaches that falsehood. We're born with original sin. We're born totally depraved. God is saying here, you are sinful people. You can't be in my presence unless you're washed. And then don't come too close. If you so much as touch the mountain, you're going to die. If you let your sheep touch the mountain, they'll die. And don't go on the mountain to pick them off. Even if it's your brother, your wife, no. You have to stone them or shoot them when they touch the mountain, because they have to die. They cannot be in my presence. And you say, what is going on here? What is the writer of Hebrews saying? Well, one thing he's saying, I want to give you a full-orbed picture of the God that you worship. God is a trinity. That's hard to comprehend. But God is so much more. God characterizes himself. He presents himself to his people in a variety of ways. Go back. Last week, Sunday, Pastor Bob had a fantastic sermon about the plagues and about the idols connected with them. I learned a lot. That very first plague, God had warned Pharaoh and the Egyptians if you don't let my people go, I'm going to do some pretty heavy things against you. And that first plague, God says to Moses and Aaron, lay down your rod. And the entire Nile River turns into blood. Every fish in the Nile River is dead and it stinks to high heaven. They're floating along the shore. You can't drink it. You can't use it for irrigation. 
And you say, wait a minute, that's probably a little pool somewhere along Cairo or maybe, no. The Nile River is 4,300 miles long. It's the longest, biggest river in the world. Bigger than the Mississippi, bigger than the Amazon. All of that water from the beginning in South Sudan all the way to the Mediterranean Sea instantaneously turns to blood. You can't drink it. You need drinking water, you better dig a well. And the text tells us that. You better dig a well somewhere out here away from the river because the river is blood. It's a demonstration of Almighty God with his almighty power. The power of God sometimes just amazes me. How great God is, what he can do. It's tremendous. But that's only one facet of it. As Pastor Bob pointed out last week, every one of these ten plagues is zeroing in on idols that the Egyptians worshipped. The Egyptian people have over 2,000 idols at this time in their history. The Nile River is connected with two different idols, Habi, one that Pastor Bob mentioned last week, and Osiris. And what God is doing is not only showing his awesome power, but he is also defeating the idols that the Egyptians worshipped. Your idols can't do a thing. Nothing but wood and stone and fabrications of make-believe. And through all of those ten plagues, God is doing that kind of thing. He's destroying the Egyptian idols one after another. But jump ahead to plague number 10. God had warned Pharaoh and says, look, I'm going to send a whole bunch of these, and if you don't repent, I will finally send a plague where you will get the message and you will let them go. I warn you. Every firstborn child and every firstborn animal in your household is going to die at midnight. But notice what God is doing there. God is not simply presenting himself as the almighty God. He's saying, I want you to see me as a lamb. A little one-year-old lamb. No blemishes, no spots has to be a male, and when that male lamb dies, everybody covered by the blood is going to be saved. But at that very same moment in time, every household in all of Egypt will have a death, and every firstborn animal will die. And not a dog will bark in response. God is saying, yes, I am almighty. I can turn the Nile into blood. But I am also a lamb. And God says to his people, I want you to see me as a lamb. A lamb that has to die. Because already God is saying, I'm pointing ahead to my son on the cross. Don't you get that? 
But then they leave the Nile River, and they go wandering through the wilderness, kind of a strange path they go. And God says, oh, okay, I'm going to show you another picture of myself, another characterization of myself. I'm going to be a big cloud, so thick that none of the Egyptian army can get through it. They won't be able to find their way. And at night, I'm going to turn that big cloud into a pillar of fire. And Pharaoh and his army are going to stay back there. Because they can't get you. I am your protector. I am almighty. I am a lamb. But I'm also your protector. I will save you from the enemy. And keep going. Now God says, all right, I'm going to take you to the mountain. And I'm going to give you another characterization of myself. I'm going to give you another picture of who I am. I'm going to be on top of that high mountain. And I'm going to make that mountain shake, rattle, have fire all over it, clouds, earthquakes, lightnings. And you say, I am a just, righteous God who cannot tolerate evil. I am holy to such an extent. If you so much as touch the mountain on which I stand, you will die. Another demonstration of God on the mountain. Let me digress for just a second. If you studied Greek history, Greek mythology, doesn't that sound exactly like a picture of Zeus, the primary Egyptian god? Where did the Greeks get that message? Where did they get that idea that God is rumbling around in the heavens in a big chariot? They got it from the story at Mount Sinai. They heard all of that. They knew all about God presenting himself. God comes there says, I'm going to give you my law. And I want you to know that I will not tolerate any substitutes. All through this is the message, I am jealous. I am a jealous God. And as soon as you go into Exodus 20, as soon as God starts presenting the Ten Commandments, what do we find there in verse 4? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I will not tolerate any substitutes. That message comes loud and clear Number one and number two are so emphatic, God says, make sure you hear and see these. What do the Israelites do? Remember that the book of Exodus is all about laws. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all about laws, about sacrifices, and about sanctuary and everything else. So God calls Moses back up on the mountain and says, I'm going to give you the rest of the law. While he's up on the mountain, what are the Israelites doing? Oh, we haven't seen Moses for a while. 
Aaron, why don't you give us your earrings, your jewelry that we got from the Egyptians, and we'll make a golden calf. And we'll worship that golden calf because the calf brought us out of Egypt. How utterly stupid could they be? How deaf could they be to God's law? God sees, God hears, but God is so angry. You read ahead into chapters 32, 33, 34 of Exodus. God comes down and says, Moses, go down there. Moses goes down with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and he sees what's going on. He throws them down on the ground. They're shattered pieces. And God says, wait a minute. I made those. You go back up and make a replacement. That wasn't acceptable, Moses. But in the meantime, God says, I am going to wipe out every Israelite. Everyone who worshiped that golden calf. They're going to be done. God had done that once before. Back in the time of Noah, God says, it is so evil, so pervasive, I'm going to destroy the whole earth and all the people except for Noah and his family. And God threatens to do the same thing now. God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses said, wait a minute. There's a very interesting argument going on here in Exodus 32 and 33. God, please, Please reconsider. What will all the Egyptians say? What will all the Hittites? What will all the Philistines? There are nations all around. They've seen what you've done. And now you take them out and you kill them? God says, all right, Moses, you've made a good case. I will only destroy 3,000. 3,000 of the Israelites are killed. And then I'm going to send a plague into the villages and a lot of people are going to get sick. And you're going to have to learn that I am a jealous God. Because God then says there in Exodus 34, verse 14, my name is jealous. I am a jealous God. I will not tolerate any idols of any sort. That's the kind of God who comes there to the Israelites. That's the kind of God that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But then we get to that key word, but. There's another picture. Go with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to start reading there at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice the contrast. All these people from every nation, from every tribe, from every color are standing there in the presence of God. They're not afraid. They're singing his praises. They're so close they could stand there before him, rejoicing. Nobody's crying. There are no tears. There's no sadness. There's no thundering. There's no lightning. There are no earthquakes. There are no threats. What's happened? Did God somehow decide that the image he presented in the Old Testament was not very popular? That he had to create a new sales pitch? That he had to somehow alter his propaganda machine? No. Absolutely, categorically not. God still hates sin. And he hates sinners. But these people are not sinners. They're saints. They're all dressed in white robes, in linen. They have no evil. There, there's no sin attached to them. What happened? The cross. The cross. God so hated sin, so hates sin, present tense, that he took his only son from heaven, sent him to earth, and said, you become a person. You become a man. Because I'm sending you to earth for one primary purpose. You have to die. And the death on the cross is the most painful, the most horrible, the most despicable kind of death imaginable. And God says, I so hate sin, I'm going to lay all of the sin of my people on you, Jesus. And you're going to pay the price for all of that. And because he was totally righteous, because he was perfect, without spot, without blemish, all of his righteousness gets transferred to us. We enjoy it. We don't deserve it. Not at all. It's a matter of grace. God loves his people. 
God calls them to repentance and says, look, you have to repent of your sins. You have to be sorry for them. But I will forgive you. I will wash you clean, you're white as snow, and you can spend forever and forever in the new Jerusalem with me. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear God and Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son to take all of our sins, all of our wicked, stupid behaviors on himself so that our sins might be paid for. And we thank you that you were so merciful and so loving and so gracious toward us that you laid our sins on him. And we know as we sang earlier, it's in Christ alone. No other way, no other Savior, only your Son. In his name do we pray. Amen.